You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast. For a complete list of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Cindy, they were clapping for you and your play and not me coming up here, I promise you. I had a question posed to me this week that I've just never encountered before. I was by a young man asked me, is it okay as a Christian to be afraid? I think he was a little worried that he was scared and or afraid. And I thought, well, my first thought was, well, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that kind of fear I know is okay. But I knew that wasn't exactly what he was getting to. And I said, well, what is it you're afraid of? And to paraphrase, he basically said, I'm, I'm afraid of missing God's will. I just don't know exactly what God wants me to do in the future, and I don't want to miss it. And I said to him, I said, well, how old are you? He was 15 years old. And I thought, well, I wish all 15-year-olds were concerned about not missing God's will, but certainly not something to be afraid of. So how do you know what God wants you to do? How do you know that you're on mission with God, that you're not lagging behind or running ahead? That's the point of the passage today. In fact, the point of even the end of the passage has a lot to do with freedom. As we celebrate uh, our nation's independence today and we celebrate freedom, I really want you to get this today. Not only can we thank those who've gone before us to pay the price of our freedom as a nation, but you need to understand your ultimate freedom comes from Jesus Christ and exactly what price was paid for that. I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I'm preaching through the book of Acts, and if you're interested, you can catch up on previous sermons online at GardenCityChapel.com. You can also, if you're here today and you think, I want to hear the rest of the series, uh, you can do that also uh, through the podcast online. Up to this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel spread from Jerusalem. And a lot of what made it spread was either persecution or individual evangelism. The turning point now is that the gospel is anchored now in the town of Antioch. And from there, we're going to see missions really develop uh, around the world. Let's look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 to begin. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. First thing I want you to see is the call to mission. They were at Antioch. This was the first place where the term Christian was used. In fact, it was really used by the enemies of Christ. They used it as a term of derision, but the disciples embraced it. And so it became the term of a follower of Christ was called a Christian. I don't know if you knew that or not. If you're a believer now, you don't mind calling yourself a Christian. That term originally was just, hey, they're one of Christ's. They're Christ's ones. They're Christians. We embrace that today, and I'm glad that the first century, the believers said, you know what, if that's what you want to call us, I can think of a lot worse. In fact, I can't think of anything better than to be called one of Christ's, one of his little ones. And so that's where it began. Now, there were prophets and teachers there, and we see in this first 
century church that they were ministering to the Lord. It gives us the name of five men that were there, some of whom we know a lot about, some of whom we know very little about other than their name or maybe a designation beside their name. But it says, while they were ministering to the Lord. What is that word? The word literally means to be a public servant. And it came to be known as someone who ministered among God's people. It literally means this. It means they were worshiping. It means they were praying. They were fasting. They were involved in worship of Jesus Christ. While that was happening, the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, how did that happen? Did they hear an audible voice? Did, did, a, did a voice, you know, they didn't have sound systems back then, so it couldn't have come over the speakers, but did they hear it? No. How do you know that God is speaking to you? How, how did they know that? It, it very possibly could have been one person that said, you know, I sense in this time of prayer, in this time of fasting, this time of worship, I sense that the Holy Spirit is saying this. But obviously there was a witness of the Spirit among the believers, and they knew that it was God talking. They knew that God was speaking through the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. How do you know that God's speaking? Well, for one thing, if you say God told you something, you better make real sure that God told you. I was driving in the car a few years ago with a good friend of mine. In fact, we were going to a prayer retreat. He looked at me and he said, God told me we're not going to have any more children. And I, were, I trusted his walk with God long enough and, and well enough that I knew, well, this is interesting. How did that happen? How did, you know, did you hear a voice? How did he do that? Well, on the way to our prayer retreat, he finally started unpacking what he meant by God told me that we weren't going to have any more children. It, it really came down to his wife told him that they weren't going to have any more children. And I was still okay with that, that maybe God had told her, you know, men, there are times you really need to listen to your wife. God may speak to you through your wife. And women, God may speak to you through your husband. If he can speak through a donkey, who knows? But you better make sure it's God speaking. Well, as we unpack that a little bit more, it wasn't just that his wife told him that. The bottom line is she didn't want to have any more children. And I thought, well, okay. And, you know, I didn't rebuke him real bad. I just kind of said, well, I, you know, I don't know that that's of God. I mean, I don't know. About a month later, he called me and said, you know, I don't believe it. I said, what? He said, my wife's pregnant. <laughs> I said, well, maybe that wasn't God you heard from. <laughs> maybe God did speak after all and... You've had your third child. How do you know that God's speaking? I could preach a sermon. We could do a series on this. But real simply, even from this passage, one is this. You will see a steady direction. If it's God speaking, it will not be confusion because we know that God is not the author of confusion. If you are praying and fasting, you're walking with God, you're in fellowship with God on a regular basis, and you sense a steady push in a direction, that's not the way the enemy works. That's the way God works. Secondly, is it consistent with the Word of God? If you ever sense that God's telling you to do something that is not supported in Scripture, then you know it's not God. Again, He's not going to contradict what He's already told us. And the third thing, and you need to get this one. I need to get this one. The third thing is this. Are you acting on what God's already told you? I have too many times and too many conversations with people that are wanting to know step five when they're not acting on step one. If you're concerned, students, if you're concerned about, you know, who you're going to marry, if you're concerned about where you're going to go to college, if you're going to, if you're concerned about vocation, adults, if you're concerned about a direction from God, 
Ask this question first. Am I already obeying what he's told me to do right now? Don't expect him to give you step five until you've operated and acted on step one. And it's also important to note, when did the Holy Spirit speak? It's while they were worshiping. While they were fellowshipping with God. Listen, if you're not spending time with God on a regular basis, then probably the only thing you're going to hear from him is him drawing you back to himself. That's going to be the first step for God. If you're not a child of God, he's going to draw you into relationship with him as a believer. If you are a child of God and you're out of fellowship, his mission in your life is going to be to bring you back into fellowship. So again, don't be asking God questions if you're not walking with God. Also, adults, students, be careful answering God questions. If somebody asks you a question, maybe the first thing you need to think is, do I even have an answer to this? Or are they asking me to step in for God for them? And so it's okay at times to say, you know what, I'll pray for you about that. I appreciate you asking me that. And I'm going to pray that God would reveal that to you. But I can't ask, answer God questions unless I know clearly from his word. Now, sometimes you can do that. Sometimes you can go to the Bible and so, say, you know, you've asked a question, it's answered right here. So the Holy Spirit spoke and he said, set apart. Literally to set off by boundary, exclude or appoint. I know these men are involved here, but appoint them. And folks, we know it was the Holy Spirit that did it because the church would not have chosen Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because they were the leaders of the church. Typically, the church doesn't release somebody to do something that they're holding on to themselves. Now, some churches would, and I think that would be the appropriate thing to do if God's telling you to do that. And obviously, this church does that. They know that it's the Spirit telling them to do it. So they gave two of their shining stars, the two people responsible for the birth of the church. This had to be hard for a church to say, we're willing to obey God and release Paul and Barnabas to the work that God's called them to. We're not going to hold on to him. We're not going to cling to him. And so he said, set apart for me these two men. Listen, if you ever struggle with a call to ministry, there's a couple of verses I just want to share with you. One is Second Timothy. And this really goes along with that whole idea of are you acting on step one? Are you already doing what God's given you enough light to do? Are you obeying God now? Second Timothy, Paul says this. In chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says this, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Paul, again, in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So he said, set them apart. These were men that were already doing ministry. This wasn't their call to ministry. This was their call to a new mission. They had already been doing ministry for years. I think we lose sense of that. We're only in the Acts chapter 13. And sometimes you miss it in a verse where it says they were here for three years or they were here for one year. Time has passed since Paul's Damascus Road experience. And that was a salvation event. Then God few days later reveals to him what it is he wants him to do and Paul had already been out in ministry so this really wasn't their ordination service necessarily this was setting them aside for a specific brand new task that the spirit was calling them to so they prayed fasted and prayed again I think the whole church then because someone said this is what we believe God's calling us to do the whole church got together and fasted and prayed and then laid hands on them, and sent them away. Let them go. Release them. 
I just want to say, if you're in leadership at a church, this is a great pattern to follow. If you sense or if one person who you trust their walk with God is sensing something, call the church together and pray. God, is this of you? And if so, how do we act on this? There should be unity of the spirit. There should be unity in the church. And you'll know this is of God. And even though it hurts to say bye to these two guys who've been responsible for us for these years, we're sending them out under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So then let's look at the ministry. Let's look what they were sent to, verses 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, fixed, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So the ministry leaves Antioch. They go over to the, to the coastline, to a town there. Then they get on a boat and sail over to the island of Cyprus. And they start at the first town they come to. And it says they finally cross the island and get over to Paphos, which is on the other side of the island. And so they've been preaching in the synagogues, which tells you this had a large Jewish population. This wasn't just an area that had one synagogue. It had multiple synagogues. And that was Paul's pattern. He started out preaching in the synagogue. And then he went from the synagogues out to the folks who wouldn't have been a part of the synagogue, to the Gentile part of the nation. And on the island now, over here at the town of Paphos, they encountered this magician whose name was Bar-Jesus. The word magician carries a little more negative connotation in our language than it does back then because the same word or the same group of people would have been the people back in Daniel that interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And finally, at the end, you know, they couldn't interpret his dream. And Daniel does. And he actually convinces the king to spare their life. It's also the same word of the Magi who come to worship Jesus in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 2. But we know these are different. These, number one, were not from or the Orient. These weren't the ones from afar. These weren't really part of that cast of intelligent scientists. This guy was a part of something. He was just... A magician, and he was a false prophet. His name was Bar Jesus. Anytime you see the word Bar, it means son of. So it means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. Now, Jesus was a common name. This is not the son of Jesus Christ. Okay? This is Bar Jesus, son of a guy named Jesus or Yahshua. And so that's who this guy is. But he's a false prophet. Literally, he's a pretended foreteller. This guy is making money. By attaching himself to wealthy, well-to-do people, and he's done that now with this pro-council, he's like a governor or a deputy, 
And he, that, that guy is a guy that says he's an intelligent man. He's a seeker of truth. And we'll see him later call for Barnabas and Paul. But at this point, he's just listening to everything this guy, this magician, has to say. In fact, we find out later that the word magician is translated Elamos. And when it says in your translation, that's the translation of his name. That's not the translation of Bar-Jesus. That's just translation of the word magician. So that's what he was known as. And so he is deceiving the people, and specifically this connected man, this uh, man of the proconsul, uh, and he is uh, trying to kind of lead him astray. So when Paul and Barnabas come, and the the proconsul asks, "Well, I want to hear what you've got to say." And again, this wasn't that this guy, you know, was was ready to become a believer at this point. He really was, and he was just a seeker of information. In Acts chapter seventeen, we saw that people of those days loved hearing new philosophies. They just loved hearing. New ideas, and so they'd gather a bunch of people around them and just say, okay, you tell us what you believe. So that's kind of what this guy had heard from this false prophet and probably thought, well, Paul and Barnabas, they're Jews, so let's hear what their, their spin on this is. Well, Elamus, or Bar-Jesus, it says, was opposing them. Why? He was standing against them because he didn't want them to gain influence with his governor that he had influence over. In fact, he didn't want them to lead him to the truth because that was going to be bad for him. He was going to lose the gravy train if he lost this proconsul. And so he was opposing them. He was seeking to turn them away from the faith. He was seeking to distort everything they were saying. I think literally he's still trying to have the proconsul's ears so that when Paul and Barnabas do begin to speak, he's over there going, don't listen to that. That's not right. That's not what I've told you. You need to listen to me. Because he knew that what they were saying was in this direction and what he was saying was in this direction. He's literally trying to pervert or corrupt the truth. Now look at me. Anytime, anytime that you're on mission for God, anytime you're attempting to do something for Jesus, expect opposition. Why does that floor us at times when we think, man, I'm trying to do something for God? And yet we are opposed. I've said it before. Some of you never heard me say it, but listen, if you don't hit Satan head on, sometimes it's because you're traveling in the same direction. So don't be surprised when you encounter opposition, when you encounter people who try to distort the truth and try to turn people away from the truth. But I love what Paul does. Paul, in fact, in verse nine, it says, calls him Saul. This is the last time they'll call him Saul who was also known as Paul, first time they're going to call him Paul, and this really is kind of a division of his name, and you say, well, okay, did he have an identity crisis? Paul probably had three or four names. He was a Roman citizen, he was also a Hebrew, and so his name, three or four names, included, I'm sure, Saul and Paulus. And so Saul was a Hebrew name, so when he's ministering to the Jews before chapter 13, he went by the name Saul. Now he's also called Paul because as a Roman citizen, it's also his name. And Paul's ministry really does redirect to more of a Gentile ministry now. And so he went by the name Paul. And so Paul says, fixed his gaze, literally gazed intently at this guy. Now keep in mind, Paul and Barnabas have been speaking the truth. This guy has been opposing them, probably just sniping at everything they're saying, getting in the ear of the proconsul, trying to distract him. And Paul finally looks at him and says, you're full of deceit and fraud. The word deceit literally means you're full of a trick. You're full of bait. Literally, the word means a snare. 
It, it would either be a, a term you would use in fishing where you're putting something on the hook to catch a fish or you've put something in a trap to catch an animal. He says, you're full of that. You're also full of fraud. Literally, you're reckless. You're unscrupulous. You're, a, you're the son of a devil. And it's interesting, the guy's name was son of Jesus. Paul says, no, you're not bar Jesus, you're bar devil. How do we know that? Jesus put it this way back in John's gospel. He said, anytime you speak a lie, it's because you're speaking the same language that your father speaks, the devil, who is a liar and the father of all lies. Lies don't come from God, they come from the enemy. And so Paul simply called it like it was. Basically said, why don't you shut up? Because you're lying. You don't even know the truth. You don't practice the truth. You're out for your own gain. You're setting a snare in this guy's way of getting to the truth. He says, you're an enemy of righteousness. You literally are at war against God. You will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of God. Paul's saying, I'm trying to set this man on the straight and narrow, so to speak. I'm showing him the way to God, and you're doing everything you can to distort the path, to throw roadblocks in the way. But hear this, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You're going to be blind for a time. You're not going to see the sun. Now, Paul had experienced this himself for a few days. And I think we even see the grace of God here, and that is you're going to be blind for a time. Apparently, this wasn't going to be a permanent condition, but it says a mist comes upon him, literally opaqueness. So I think it's just kind of the, somebody started pulling the shade down. It wasn't just somebody, it was God. Pulls the shade down, and eventually it's totally dark. In fact, it was so dark, it says he's going about seeking somebody to take him by the hand. And I doubt he was going to get Paul and Barnabas to help him. <laughs> So he's like, somebody get me out of here. He's seeking somebody to take him by the hand. He could not see. But the grace is, it was just going to be for a time. And I don't see a point where he comes back and says, remember me? I was the guy that was blind for a little while. Well, I've repented of all that. So I don't know what the outcome of this grace of God of not keeping him blind forever was, but it, it shut him up and got him out of the picture. And based upon that, we see that the proconsul ends up believing, literally placing his faith in Jesus Christ. He was amazed at their teaching. In fact, it's interesting to know if you read historians that tell us about this proconsul by name, not only does history re reveal that he became a believer, but it also names his daughter and his grandson among the believers on that island. So this ministry of Paul and Barnabas that leaves Antioch, sails across the Mediterranean Sea, to the island of Cyprus, ends up in Paphos, encountering a magician who's a false prophet. Not only leads to the, con to the conversion of this proconsul, but even extending through his family, the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Well, then let's get to the message of it. At this point, we see in the next verse, I'm not going to take time to read these next few verses, but John Mark ends up leaving. Not totally sure why John Mark left, but it wasn't apparently for really good reasons because Paul gets mad about it. In fact, there's a conflict between Paul and Barnabas over this relative of Barnabas leaving them. Not even totally sure what John Mark's role was. It says that he was serving them. Not totally sure what that role was, but he ends up leaving. We see him reemerge later. But 
Paul gets up and preaches a message, and he really starts from history and traces through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. And I want to, I want to close with just the last part of the message where we find in verse 38 the word, therefore. And in Scripture, when you see therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Well, it's therefore because of what he's just told them, okay? Because of God's activity, because of God's salvation history, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe. Though someone should describe it to you. This, in a nutshell, is the gospel message. And keep in mind, this is initially being preached to the Jews. The people who placed their faith in God and the faith in the fact that God would send a Messiah. Unfortunately, they rejected the one he did send. And so they believed our freedom comes through keeping the law. All those Old Testament laws, not just the Ten Commandments, but hundreds of other laws. In fact, those laws weren't good enough. They even created laws to help them keep those laws. And they thought through keeping them, they would be free. You remember the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. He says, oh, oh yeah, I've kept all those. They thought freedom would come through the law. The law was a school teacher that pointed them to their need of a Savior. Here's the problem with the Jews. They didn't think they needed a Savior. Why? Because they were keeping the law. We don't need Jesus. We're doing okay by ourselves. We're children of Abraham. We're keepers of the law. And what Paul is saying, keep in mind, Paul, who kept the law himself, was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. Paul used to think, I'm okay because I'm keeping the law. I don't need Jesus. What's he finally say? Oh, you need Jesus. You need Jesus because the law of Moses can't free you. The word free means to forgive. It means to render just or innocent. It means to be pronounced before a holy God as righteous. And that doesn't come from keeping the law. Folks, we couldn't keep the law. The law showed us how desperately needy we were for a Savior. If you got your Bibles, look back at Romans for a moment. Go, go forward to Romans chapter 3. I don't have this on the screen, but just to clarify this and close with this thought. Romans chapter 3. We can all quote Romans 3.23, but I want you to see what follows. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that mean? None of us kept the law. We've all sinned. In case you're sitting here thinking everybody in here hadn't, everybody has. You're not the only one. Then he goes on in verse 24, But being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, now listen. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law or works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith as one, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. The law is what points us to the need for a Savior. Listen, the Jews didn't think they needed a Savior because they were keeping the law. Most of you today don't think, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. But some of you today have rejected Christ because you don't think you need a Savior. I've had those kind of conversations with people. Listen, do you understand that you need to say, oh, no, I've been pretty good. I've and I think it really comes down to, I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. If you're going to face God on that basis, let me tell you something. You're in desperate trouble. Because all it takes is one sin to make you a sinner. And all the good deeds you could ever try to do will never reach God. You see, God never intended it to be that way. That's why he reached out to us through Jesus Christ. God sent His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God made a way for us to be free. God made a way for us to be forgiven. So today, don't be like the stubborn Jews that think we've got the Old Testament, man, we know it. Or I live in America. Or I go to church. If you place your faith in anything other than Jesus Christ, anything that you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word from the Apostle Paul that he was so concerned that they not fulfill the prophecy of Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. But rather... Rather than trusting in their flesh and the works of the law, they would understand their desperate need of a Savior. And God, I pray that for us today. God, for those of us that call the name of Jesus, we claim Christ as our Savior. Thank you that we are free in Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that today, even today, would be the day of their salvation. Thank you that you have made a way for us to be forgiven. Thank you for the mission that we see here in Acts 13, as the Word does what you said it was going to do, and that is it would reach the nations. We continue to pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.